The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Shattering the Barriers to Glioblastoma Care, Revolutionary Advances with Innovative Technologies and Modern Systemic Approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NAX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you. Um, I want to thank uh, Peerview for inviting me and our uh, guest speakers. And uh, thank you from the guests here coming from all over the world. Uh, I recognize thought leaders from England, Sweden, and uh, around the world. There are two ways to keep up in our field uh, with so many revolutions going on, immuno-oncology and AI and cancer neuroscience, biomarkers, and, and on and on. You could read four hours a day, all the journals, or you could come here once a year. In one hour, we're going to go through like a rocket, all this information. So we've got, um, we, Peerview does an amazing job to curate all this. And we have two educators, professors, key thought leaders uh, from the M institutions from Miami, Miami Cancer Institute. We have Dr. Manwi Alawalia who's scientific director at Baptist Miami Cancer Institute. And from the University of Michigan, we have Michelle Kim, who's professor of radiation oncology. Also is a uh, teacher, educator, and a clinical trialist, and has done some amazing work. So uh, I'm so excited to start and kickstart this meeting. I can't, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say this is the 50th anniversary of the American Brain Tumor Association, and they've been uh, steady partners with, with us every year. So uh, we're, we're proud to be doing this with the ABTA. So what are our educational goals? Uh, we're going to have a better understanding of the clinical evidence behind the latest practice-changing advancements in this disease and strategies to integrate new and emerging therapeutic approaches in clinical practice and develop personalized individual management plans and help you in, improve the team science, teamwork when addressing practical aspects of care for patients with glioblastoma. Uh, as I mentioned, the ABTA's mission uh, is to understand the treatment of uh, brain tumors and improve quality of life. And you can download the ABTA practice aid to learn about their free brain tumor resources. So um, we know some of the barriers. Uh, the, uh, I think uh, this is a very sophisticated group, and you know that um, uh, we're talking about the brain as a limited capacity to repair itself, neurotoxicity, the uh, pleomorphism, pl uh, the oncoplasticity, the migration, the blood-brain barrier, uh, leakage in the capillaries, we know there are two main types, local uh, regional surgery, radiation, tumor treating fields, and systemic therapies, including targeted uh, immunotherapy, biological therapy, and chemotherapy. We know that age is the main prognostic factor in the five-year survival rate uh, for those uh, young, uh, under 44 is 22%, middle age 45 to 50 four, nine percent, and over 55, six percent. 
So um, the speakers here, uh, Dr. Kim will be talking about innovations and in multimodal therapeutic options and tumor trading fields and other technologies that are reshaping treatment. Uh, we know one of the paradoxes, even though FDA approved uh, TGF 12 years ago, the uh, usage in the clinic has been uh, modest, uh, less than 16% uh, of those with recurrent disease and only uh, less than 12% of those with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. And the practice guidelines recommend clinical trials always as the best option, as you know. However, fewer than 11% of patients are actually enrolled in clinical trials. So we're gonna start with a patient, J.B. Bird, uh, presented by the American Brain Tumor Association. There'll be a little video. Thank you, Peerview, for putting on this impactful programming in partnership with the American Brain Tumor Association to drive the improvement in care and outcomes for brain tumor patients. My name is Umbreen Mon, Program Manager at the ABTA, and today I have with me JB, who will be sharing his experiences and insight as a brain tumor patient. Thank you so much for joining us, JB. To get us started, can you tell me a little bit more about your diagnosis and what it was like for you to hear for the first time that you have a brain tumor? Yes, thank you. Um, my name is JB, as you said, and almost nine years ago, I was initially diagnosed with a glioblastoma. When I was first told I had a glioblastoma, I was confused and in the dark. There were too many unknowns, like why, how, what does it even mean? How long do I have? The brain damage had, had, I had experienced didn't help matters. I was fortunate to have family with me to keep everything on track. So our next speaker is uh, Dr. Michelle Kims, a clinical professor of radiation oncology at the University of Michigan. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for the wonderful attendance this evening from all of our audience and, again, our sponsors and coordinators for this wonderful session. In this segment of the session, we will be focusing specifically on innovations in the local regional management of glioblastoma and how modern technologies, including tumor-treating fields, are reshaping treatment paradigms in this disease. As was elucidated by Dr. Brim, Despite the challenges and suboptimal outcomes in patients with glioblastoma, unfortunately, our standard radiation treatment approaches have not changed despite decades of similarity. Typically, radiation oncologists will define using conventional anatomic tumor um, imaging at a single pretreatment time point, the area of contrast enhancement in this disease, which is presumed to represent the most aggressive tumor region, expand this non-specifically to encompass uh, non-enhancing areas of disease, and um, the areas that are presumed to be more aggressive, the enhancing areas are treated with a higher dose, whereas the non-enhancing areas receive a lower dose of radiotherapy. What we now understand, however, is that biologically relevant non-enhancing disease, which is suboptimally addressed uh, with our local regional therapies, is associated with worse outcomes. In fact, stereotactic biopsies have demonstrated that tumor extending outside of regions of contrast enhancement predict outcome, and that incomplete resection or radiotherapeutic coverage of these regions, not identified using our standard conventional imaging, but potentially identified using advanced imaging approaches, predicts for worse progression-free and overall survival. This finding is underscored by recent work by the collaborative renal resect group demonstrating a clear association with overall survival in the extent not just of the contrast-enhancing disease, but also the non-enhancing disease. 
In addition, the Rainer Resect Group has demonstrated that systematic pathologic evaluation of regions, again, not just of contrast enhancement, but also non-enhancing regions can permit us to evaluate the not just anatomic or pathologic, but also potentially the biologic heterogeneity of this disease. In fact, tumor heterogeneity is the underlying basis for treatment resistance in GBM and calls into question whether the one-size-fits-all approach really makes sense. Towards this, now efforts towards precision radiotherapy are moving to the forefront, which is being done in order to overcome the tumor heterogeneity that limits the efficacy of our targeted drug therapies. Importantly, to identify biologically aggressive tumor regions potentially missed using anatomic imaging that dictates our local therapies, and ultimately to overcome emerging treatment resistance or temporal heterogeneity secondary to tumor evolution that may occur even during the course of our standard treatments. To achieve this form of precision radiotherapy, integral imaging biomarkers are now being incorporated potentially to guide patient-specific radiotherapy in patients with glioblastoma. In order to be a candidate integral imaging biomarker, these must be not just prognostic for tumor control and outcome, but also spatially concordant with where tumors ultimately recur, potentially demonstrating areas of treatment resistance which will eventually repopulate and dictate the patient's outcome. Of course, it must be feasible and generalizable, but also, as I mentioned, potentially allow temporal monitoring of a therapy-resistant phenotype emerging during the course of our standard therapies. To this end, I will present two candidate integral imaging biomarkers, which are being evaluated on a national basis in the National Clinical Trials Network. The first is a multi-parametric MR imaging signature evaluated and investigated at the University of Michigan, incorporating high B-value diffusion-weighted MRI, able to identify hypercellular and often non-enhancing tumor regions, in concordance with DCE perfusion MRI, which is able to identify phenotypically hyperperfused areas of tumor, which in combination are complementary and importantly identify areas of a non-enhancing disease that are biologically relevant and impact patient outcome. To evaluate the potential benefit of integrating this imaging biomarker to improve patient outcomes, we conducted a phase two study evaluating its potential um, benefit in guiding patient-specific therapy, demonstrating potential improvement in survival, especially among patients with early response in this imaging biomarker, and an associated uh, alteration in pattern of failure with a reduction in central tumor recurrence um, or infield recurrences seen in this, with this novel treatment approach. In addition, a second imaging biomarker, um, which is a PET amino acid radio tracer that is also not dependent on blood-brain barrier breakdown, 18F-DOPA, has also been evaluated in the same vein at the Mayo Clinic, which similarly, in concordance, um, conducted a phase two study evaluating the utility of this imaging approach to guide dose-escalated radiotherapy. Similarly, in this investigation, they demonstrated improvement in outcomes, namely improvement in progression-free survival and the unmethylated cohort, and even overall survival in the methylated population of patients. A more novel front towards the integration of integral imaging biomarkers to guide radiotherapy includes utilizing these imaging biomarkers to evaluate the status of a tumor during the course of our treatment. In fact, when we evaluated the multi-parametric MR imaging signature midway during the course of radiotherapy, 
we discovered that suboptimal response of tumor identified with this biomarker was associated with worse progression-free and overall survival independent of age, extent of resection, and MGMT methylation status. Because of this, a new frontier of what is known as response-adaptive radiotherapy utilizing these imaging biomarkers is now under investigation. But what, we can, what can we say beyond local therapies, specifically radiotherapy, in terms of other effective um, treatment modalities in this lethal disease? In this next section, we'll be discussing how recent evidence, including evidence that will be uh, demonstrated and discussed at this meeting, has uh, elucidated tumor treating field as a potential fourth cancer treating tumor modality. It is notable that um, recent evidence may suggest that there is a rationale for combining both tumor treating fields with radiotherapy as these have complementary and non-overlapping mechanisms of action, specifically targeting aspects of the cell cycle and specifically targeting um, cells that are dividing, namely cancer cells. As many of you in this audience may know, tumor treating fields are an anti-mitotic therapy that entails the administration of alternating electric fields capable of disrupting charged particles during the mitosis phase of cell division, which may ultimately lead to cell death. We'll pause here to learn a little bit more about the mechanism of action. In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. So tumor-treating fields, in addition to the advances in patient-specific radiotherapy, also represent a local region of modality that is personalized or individualized for patients, involving the use of strategic placement of transducer arrays that are applied to the scalp in both a patient-specific as well as a tumor-specific manner. Um, this also entails and incorporates information regarding morphologic head size of the patient as well as tumor location specifically. And in order to achieve this, tumor treating fields dose intensity is specifically mapped in order to optimize the therapy delivered. So with this preclinical evidence of the potential mechanism of benefit of tumor treating fields, this launched the canonical EF14 phase three randomized trial, 
which evaluated the benefit of the addition of true retreating fields to adjuvant temozolomide following standard of care chemoradiation in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. The study, in fact, was a positive one, where in the intent to treat population, both progression-free as well as overall survival were improved with the addition of this therapeutic approach. This ultimately led to the FDA approval and FDA of tumor-treating fields as a new modality, an update to the NCCN guideline for both younger as well as elderly patients with GBM, both methylated as well as unmethylated. So as a local regional modality that I mentioned has the potential to be personalized to the individual patient, new evidence suggests that tumor-treating field dose density matters, and in fact, may be higher in areas that demonstrate objective radiographic tumor regression compared to those that have suboptimal regression. In addition, more recent patterns of failure analysis demonstrate very interestingly a, uh, um, a difference compared to the expected pattern of failure in patients with glioblastoma where the vast majority of patients developed tumor recurrence centrally or in the radiotherapy field, whereas recent evidence suggests a perhaps increase in the distant pattern of failure in patients who are administered this therapy, as well as an associated lower tumor growth rate. To specifically evaluate the potential benefit of the combination of tumor-treating fields as a local regional modality in conjunction with radiotherapy, an ongoing phase three Trident trial, information of which will actually be presented at this SNOWS meeting, evaluating its benefit in conjunction with concurrent radiotherapy, followed by tumotemozolomide maintenance with tumor-treating fields, will be evaluated in patients with newly diagnosed GBM. We'd also like to take the opportunity to highlight recent evidence published just this year, evaluating not just clinical trial populations, but also new evidence from real-world settings. In fact, large data sets of patients treated standardly with tumor-treating fields have confirmed not just the safety and efficacy, but also upheld the benefit of overall survival in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma, demonstrating an association between compliance or the use of the modality with more than 75% average use that has been associated interestingly with overall survival in this disease. In addition, this is also shown to be some, something that is tolerable for patients who are elderly, 70 years of age or older. And in fact, recent evidence that will again be presented at this year's SNOW demonstrate that among 82% of patients who elected to use tumor-treating field therapy they demonstrated self-reported um, sustaining of their patient-reported health-related quality of life, with the exception of expected dermatologic effects from this modality, which was consistent with the previously published Phase three randomized trial. Additional strategies are also under investigation, evaluating its potential combination with immunotherapy, its potential benefit in non-small cell lung cancer brain metastases, as well as additional therapies in patients with recurrent GBM, which is a population, as we all know, that is a clear area of unmet need um, for which we need more clinical trials. We'll briefly touch upon this clinical case of a 62-year-old male with glioblastoma who presented with neurologic symptoms, namely vision loss and apraxia, the imaging of which demonstrated this clear sort of canonical appearance of a contrast-enhancing lesion confirmed to be WHO grade 4 glioblastoma, who received standard of care chemoradiation with tumor-treating fields. 
but who ultimately, about a year and a half later, demonstrated evidence radiographically of change, suspicious for recurrence, for which he underwent a second craniotomy, demonstrating primarily reactive brain tissue with a minute focus of recurrent or residual glioma within an area of treatment effect. And at that time, the patient was experiencing a mild rash with red itching skin papules. Um, and so perhaps in a bit of our remaining time, I might be able to pose to some of other panel members here is that this is obviously a very common situation. It's a small subset of patients eligible for re-resection of glioblastoma. Um, but you know, based on this pathologic finding of just a minute focus, um, would this patient be categorized in your practices as constituting progression and eligible for a clinical trial, or would you continue to maintain the standard of therapy the patient was treated with? Maybe Dr. Alawalia. You know, so I think uh, this is a tricky one, right? So we've uh, normally would discuss this in a tumor board. I think the critical component where we sometimes lack with this is you don't know what the baseline is. So I don't know if this patient had a larger residual tumor post-resection because even if, uh, you know, my colleagues like Dr. Brem, even if they do a gross total resection, there is typically a delay of around three to four weeks before we start chemo radiation. And we don't know how much of that tumor grows. And we do know that the tumor grows because sometimes when we have done clinical trials, which actually require you to do another MRI before, right before you start the treatment, we have seen a tumor growth. So in ideal circumstances, it's important to have that, right? Now, the other aspect that you have to keep in mind is that uh, none of the therapies that we have in recurrence, unfortunately, and I'll go over some of them, have even shown one-day survival benefit. So this is a case where ideally, I mean, I think you discuss it with your colleagues in a tumor board and, and similarly to what we have on the stage, neurosurgeons, radiation oncologists, medical or neuro-oncologists working together. But also this would be a case where you would discuss it with the patient because I think the patient's input uh, and discussion is going to be a key component as well uh, because I, I don't think so there's a clear right or wrong answer here. Now, obviously, when we have an opportunity to put a patient on a clinical trial, we want to put them on a clinical trial, but if a therapy is working and it's worked well for a year and a half, you have to pause and think twice before jumping to another opportunity. The good thing here to consider is, if you don't consider this as recurrence and continue the patient on uh, the therapy, uh, luckily this patient would not be counted as a progression and you could always treat them when you would have a little bit more increase in enhancement, which would be more consistent uh, with the progression because you've already done a surgery here. Yeah. That's exactly, you know, I've run into these situations as well. And in this, in our practice as well, we would likely not consider this to constitute recurrence. And I've had patients also, you know, want to go back on their standard of care therapies. And so in terms of optimally managing, managing dermatologic adverse events from the use of tumor treating fields, um, it's important to note that topical corticosteroids in the form of solutions or lotions are very important. And particularly choosing water-based rather than petroleum-based solutions is important for managing um, this, this potentially expected adverse event, as well as counseling the patient on um, altering the transducer, shifting transducer arrays at each array exchange. And so these are practical things that need to be discussed and timed in addition to the other uh, local regional modalities. Well, and we'll return once more to our patient JB and play this short video clip for you. So I started TT Fields about six or seven months after my initial surgery. And as an almost nine-year survivor, I've been on them ever since with uh, a, a bigger break in there somewhere, like a, like a month or two break, and then some smaller breaks um, as well. Initially, there was like an adjustment period 
But once you get used to managing the device and you're given a backpack, it's made to be a very portable and usable device. Um, I can really do just about everything that I want. You know, there's you have to make sure not to get the arrays wet on your head or, you know, the heat from the sun can cause alarms. But once you get used to adjusting to everything, I've been able to do everything from going to the gym, um, going on hikes, doing a lot of physical activities. Or if I just want to relax, uh, it's easy to just use it that way as well. And I think just once you get in the routine of things, it becomes second nature. So initially, you might feel a little bit overwhelmed, but knowing you're going to be sort of trained on the ins and outs of the device and knowing that you can take some time off it. My goal is always to try to wear it about 90% of the time, but they recommend 75% of the time at least. Um, there's a lot of wiggle room with breaks you can take. And I don't know, I feel like I bank a lot of hours on it. So if I do want to take a break and be more active during that time as well, um, there's always that option. So again, kind of addressing and helping the patients understand that there is a learning curve associated with the use of this modality, um, the importance of having a caregiver support pool, and also the importance of the, impor the important recognition of um, compliance, but also the ability to take breaks as tolerated um, with the goal of having its use at least 75% of the time. And finally, let's watch this final clip of our patient. Can you tell me a little bit or maybe share your insight or thoughts on being given the option of having a clinical trial? Is that something that's important to you? And how do you think that impacts your experience as a patient? Yeah, I think it's very important. It was like always in the back of my mind um, and the initial thoughts on everything. I knew how difficult like a glioblastoma was to treat or just these very tough brain tumors. And it was important to me because I thought at any given point, I needed to start a clinical trial because things might not work out. Yeah, and it's I think it's um, sort of important in the grand scheme of things. We're not really going to make advancements without engaging in these clinical trials. So I think it's very like, you know, brave and um, yeah, it's sort of, sort of brave of people to like engage in these, but it's also a, a hope. And um, I think the advancements in science really sort of shows that we can make some breakthroughs. Can you talk a little bit about why you think groups like the American Brain Tumor Association and other amazing brain tumor support organizations that are out there, why are they so important for both patients as well as providers when we look at treating, improving outcomes, and improving care and quality of life for patients and families? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's great to have groups like the ABTA. They advocate for patients, help educate patients and caregivers spread of awareness of brain cancer in general, uh, fund research, push forward research, raise money for, you know, many other patient uh, services, and they can help patients connect with health healthcare providers. So I think it just really takes a village in this fight with brain cancer. Um, so it's great to have the ABTA as well as other organizations like to help guide everyone. Um, just, let's keep fighting. So in conclusion, significant strides are being made in the personalization of local regional therapies, including radiotherapy, as well as tumor treating fields, and continuing partnerships between patients and patient advocacy groups will allow us to offer these types of innovative clinical trials and hopefully make advancements in this disease. Thank you so much. That, that was terrific. Thank you very much. And now we're going to have... Uh... Dr. Awalia, uh, review uh, the new and emerging therapies. 
thank you. Before I start, good evening, everyone. I would like to make four points. First, I want to thank Dr. Steve Bren. It's been great doing this with him probably for our fifth or sixth time now. I've lost count. Uh, a very eloquent and a comprehensive presentation by Dr. Michelle Krem, sharing some of the really very cool work that she and her colleagues are doing at University of Michigan. Third, really thanking JB for sharing his story. I think, you know, it's very important for us uh, to make sure that, you know, we make a difference in everyone's life and, and success stories like JB's, which are very important. And fourth and uh, the last point, if not the least, uh, thanking ABTA for their partnership for this program, but also exceptional work in the last five decades to really support the field of brain tumors, patients, caregivers, and researchers. Uh, that being said, I've been tasked today to talk about uh, integrating new, new and emerging systemic therapies to improve patient outcomes. And I'll just say at the outset, I was given 20 minutes to cover this, so there's a lot of data I wanted to cover, but I'll be happy to cover them in the questions if people will have that. Uh, and I'm gonna just touch on and start off by rectal glioblastoma. Dr. Uh, Kim had covered about newly diagnosed glioblastoma and outcomes there. And unfortunately, despite our best efforts, all patients with glioblastoma, almost all patients with glioblastoma will have a recurrence. Uh, people who have MGMT methylated tumors tend to have this recurrence nine to 12 months post-diagnosis. Those who have unmethylated tumors have it faster, unfortunately, six to nine months. And there is no approach in rectal glioblastoma, unfortunately, that has shown even a single day survival benefit. So at this stage, our first choice for all of our patients, if there is a potential clinical trial, we offer it to the patient, and, and as JB had alluded to. But if you do not have a clinical trial, some of the therapies that we use for these patients, which are the preferred regimens, include bevacizumab, re-challenge with temozolomide, uh, alkylating agents like lomustine or carmustine. Previously, we used to use the PCV combination, which was, again, lomustine, uh, along with the uh, vincristine and procarbucine. Uh, regrafenib was added based on the Rigoma data. There'll be an update to that here. And then there are other uh, options where you can combine systemic therapies with bevacizumab. Uh, you can use carmustine or lobustine again in combinations with bev or temozolomide with bev. There are some special instances where you actually can use targeted therapies, and I'll cover some of the data leading to their uh, usage. And in particular, we have NTRAC gene fusions where you have two drugs, larotrectinib and entrectinib, that can be used. And, and there's a... a tumor agnostic approval where larotrectinib was the first drug to get a pan-tumor or tumor agnostic approval. And we do know NTRAC gene fusions occur in brain tumor patients. Uh, previously, we had used agents like etoposide, platinum-based regimens, but they are, again, very relatively yes to use. But in recent times also, adding to the armamentarium have been combinations of the BRAF and the MEK inhibitors, namely dibrafenib, trametinib, or vimrafenib and cobimitinib, which can be used in patients who have a BRAF V600 activating mutations. Uh, as was uh, outlined before, uh, if you have a patient who's eligible for a clinical trial, according to the NCSCN guidelines, for a newly diagnosed patient, as well as a recurrent glioblastoma patient, the dogma is to enroll them on a clinical trial. Unfortunately, despite all these, uh, only fewer than 11% of our patients with glioblastoma enroll on clinical trials, we need to really focus on changing the clinical trial paradigm, so we should improve patient access to these clinical trials, make the criteria which are less restrictive, and obviously, unfortunately, a lot of our agents, just like how drug discovery is, start in recurrent setting, and then they go to upfront setting. That has been the dogma in cancer world in developing new drugs. But in glioblastoma, as I have told you, 
none of the agents has ever shown a benefit in recurrent setting. Neither did temozolomide, radiations being tried, uh, tumor treating fields also did not show any survival benefit in that patient, but these modalities have shown benefit in upfront setting. Hence, we need to pause and think before abandoning agents. Uh, that being said, so what are we trying to do in terms of driving the needle? And as you know, this is an era of precision medicine, of precision oncology. So one of the approaches is looking at a top-down approach, what I call. This basically means is if you have a thousand glabrous tumor patients, you will send them for genomic testing, which most of us have at uh, you know comprehensive cancer centers or large cancer programs along the country. We send our tissue, at, at least at Miami Cancer Institute, for whole exome sequencing and transcriptome uh, analysis. And using these multiomics, we can actually check for fidelities to identify what drivers are there for these patients and whether we can use any context of vulnerability to put them on a targeted therapy, or maybe these are more prone for immunotherapy. So the example of this was an effort uh, led by Patrick Wynn and Alexander, um, uh, Brian Alexander from Dana-Farber, uh, and this was an inside study design because we knew in that unmethylated patient population, uh, using a usage of temozolomide only gives them a 21-day benefit. So these people really get nine months of chemotherapy for a 21-day benefit. So hence, this was a multi-arm trial where we used one control group because one of the things for physicians or investigators who've treated patients with glioblastoma, everyone wants to go on the experimental arm because the standard arm is not very good. So one of the advantages of trial designs like this is you can use one control arm and you could compare them to multiple parallel arms. So that is a, as a result, the patient's more likely to go into an experimental arm but here the choices, for example, abemocyclib, CC115, niratinib, were based on the profiling of these patients. So for example, if anyone had the CDK pathway alteration, they would go in abemocyclib arm, which is a CDK46 and a bitter. Uh, so similarly, uh, GBM Agile, as you know, and several people in the room have participated uh, in those platform trials, are testing these drugs in adaptive phases, two slash three designs, in both newly diagnosed setting and rectum glabrostoma setting. And rografenib was the first experimental drug actually used in this trial uh, aspect, and there's gonna be data being presented here. Uh, Praxipib and VAL083 followed, and there have been other drugs, including BT1021, and others which are coming through the pipeline, which are being tested in this mechanism, where it's looking at drugs, and if they are showcasing good responses or outcome data, efficacy data, they go into the second stage, otherwise we discontinue the drug development in stage one. The other approach is actually a bottoms-up approach, and this is basically learning from each patient that we treat. So here you can treat a number of patients and then you can gather their outcomes data, but you also then get the genomic data or the biomarking testing that Dr. Kim had alluded to, and you basically look at the patients who got a good outcome versus the patients who do not get a good outcome and then try to understand what are some of the genomic predictors which may help us predict a response to new therapy and then develop the clinical assay and then test it in a positive clinical trial. And let me, let me give you an example of something that I was involved in uh, when I was at Cleveland Clinic uh, and we were part of the Adult Brain Tumor Consortium. I know Dr. Brem was a part of the effort with us as well. And so this was uh, ABTC1402, which was a trial of temozolomide, combining it with TRC-102. Uh, TRC-102 is a base excision repair inhibitor, and we do know that when we give patients uh, temozolomide, one of the pathways of repair is the MGMT. So those patients who are methylated, who do not have a repair enzyme, do not do 
well, uh, actually do well with the uh, drug because they do not have the repair enzyme. But we also know that almost 80% of the repair actually occurs through the base excision repair pathway, and TRC-102 is the inhibitor of that. So we had done some uh, xenograft ma uh, mouse model data with the lab of uh, Andy Sloan at Case Western showcasing that there was a very nice benefit, as you can see here in the curves, uh, with the combination of TRC-102 when combined with timozolomide. So we did a phase two trial, and unfortunately, it was two-stage design. Uh, none of the patients, uh, you know, uh, overall had a survival benefit or progression-free survival benefit. But there were two patients that actually I had the pleasure of taking care of, and they did really well. One of them had an 18-month progression-free survival. Another patient had 30-month progression-free survival. And actually, we had another uh, uh, IRB where we could actually profile their tumor. So I actually worked with Mike Behrens, and we sent their uh, uh, gene, uh, say, uh, the tissue for genomic analysis. So we did whole exome sequencing as well as transcriptome. And so we, what we found out was that two patients who did extremely well actually had a gene signature which predicted for overactivation of the DNA damage response pathway. And when we went back and looked at the TCGA database, 10% of these patients actually have this. So right now we are uh, putting a trial through SWOG where all the patients who have MGMT pathway will get the combination of TRC-102 along with temozolomide and radiation, and we will validate this pathway uh, in prospective manner. Uh, one of the other things that moving on, which has been uh, interesting targets, have been gene fusions. Uh, so uh, Antonio Averoni's work uh, years back showed that FGFR TAC3 gene fusion uh, was presented around 3% uh, of glioblastoma. And we do know that these are durable targets. And there are a number of drugs which target the FGFR pathway, like pemigatinib, uh, which are being undergoing through uh, clinical trials. Uh, similarly, there are gene fusions which occur in the NTRAC pathway, ROS, and MET gene fusions. And so this is an example of the efficacy of larotectinib, which, as I told you, was the first drug that got a tumor agnostic approval. What that means is, no matter what kind of cancer any patient may have, whether it's lung cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, if they have an NTRAC gene fusion, you can actually prescribe them larotrectinib. And uh, uh, when this drug was approved, the overall response rates in all the patients was north of 80%. That means for every 10 patients that we gave a drug, eight out of the 10 had a more than 50% shrinkage of their tumor, which is pretty profound. Now in brain tumors or glioblastoma, just as a reference, only 5% of our patients have a response to the drugs we use. So here you can see the data in primary CNS tumors that larotrectinib led to a response rate in 36%, which at least compares favorably. So there was a 14% complete responses and 21% partial responses. So this 36% is quite gratifying compared to the 5% we are used to seeing with our chemotherapeutic agents. Then there's a second drug called entrectinib, which is also approved for NTRAC gene fusions as well as ROS1. So this is looking at the NTRAC activity in brain mets now. And here you can see response rates of 60%, which is also very gratifying because traditionally the chemotherapies response rates even in brain metastases were around 5%. So here, as a result, if your patient has NTRAC gene fusion with any CNS uh, tumor, you can actually treat them either with larotrectinib or entrectinib.
Uh, moving on to uh, targeted therapies, uh, there has been a lot of interest, as I told you, in the BRAF and the MEK inhibition uh, in glioblastoma. And, and uh, here is a basket study of Bimbrafenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor. And then there's a combination of Dibrafenib and Trematidum. Now, this is a BRAF and MEK inhibitor showcasing a response rate of 56%. Uh, there was also a ROAR study done by Vivek Sabaya and Patrick Nguyen, which also showcased that this is a combination. And now, if your patients with brain tumors have these alterations, you can actually give them these therapies. Uh, uh, covering uh, an abstract which was presented at ASCO this year. As you know, this was an ASCO plenary. And as you know, D uh, IDH mutations do occur in a number of our patients with low-grade gliomas. And typically, their treatments have been either wait or watch, or if they need to be treated based on the RTOG 982 uh, study, the treatment is typically radiotherapy uh, followed by uh, PCV. Now, by extrapolation, a lot of people do also use uh, temozolomide. In this study, when they looked at vorasignib versus placebo in patients uh, who had uh, residual or recurrent um, uh, IDH uh, mutant low-grade glioma, what they found out was that vorasignib, which here you can see in the blue curves uh, compared to the placebo, did quite well. And so the primary endpoints were progression-free survival. And here you can see with vorasignib, it was 27.7 months compared to 11.1 months. Now, some people have... Uh, asked that this seems like a little bit aggressive disease, frankly, because this is a wait and watch uh, effort. Uh, and the other key endpoint was time to next intervention, because one of the essences, can we delay radiation to help preserve cognition? And here you can see, again, using vorasidinib, where the 24 months, you did not need any therapy in 83% of patients, but in uh, placebo-based patients, only 27% of them did not need any intervention. So obviously, exciting data, uh, we would love to see more mature results of it uh, because we also have to understand what happens when you do selective pressure uh, therapy uh, because there's always a tumor escape. But again, interesting data coming out of ASCO this year. So moving on, what are the challenges in glioblastoma? And, and again, this can be looked at in multiple ways, but in, based on the, some of the clinical trials which have come out in the last two, three years, we are primarily focusing on targeting the EGFR pathway and the immunotherapy. So as you know, EGFR pathways are altered in at least 50% of patients with glioblastoma. And several of you are aware at the SNOW presentation a couple of years back here at uh, SNOW, where uh, we looked at antibody drug conjugates, which have actually showcased in a lot of efficacy in breast cancer patients, uh, as well as now increasingly in lung cancer patients. But when we looked at the antibody drug conjugates, which is basically like a Trojan horse, here you're using a receptor for a drug to get in and you release the payload in the cancer cell. And that's why it's highly exciting uh, effort. Well, however, what we found out with this trial was using uh, this drug uh, called uh, Debetuximab mafodotin, there was no improvement in progression-free survival or overall survival. However, there are several ongoing efforts which are using EGFR-targeted therapies, whether they are bispecifics, they are CAR T cells, they are BATs, uh, they are monoclonal antibodies, uh, cetuximab is even being delivered intra-arterially. Uh, there are, uh, these are being combined with uh, immunotoxins or using nanotechnology to increase the drug delivery. So there are several efforts going on, still looking at this pathway. All the targeted therapies as well as the ADCs so far, unfortunately, have been negative. Uh, we also do know that in oncology, immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors have really transformed the care of these patients that are and a great example that I use for my fellows in clinic is at least when I started 15 years back or so, 
stage four lung cancer, five-year survival was around 5%. That's where our glioblastoma is, if you remember the figures that Dr. Uh, Brem showed you. Now the five-year survival for stage four lung cancer has become 20%. It's four times better in the last 15 years. Unfortunately, uh, glioblastoma has not moved as much. So we hope that we'll be able to move the needle for our patients. So in, with immune checkpointed inhibitors, uh, I'll show you some studies. The benefit has not been that gratifying, except from a rare subset of patients of glioblastoma who may have a hypermutation burden because of a germline biallelic mismatch repair deficiency. In those cases, as shown by Eric Buffet and his colleagues from Toronto, you can have a really dramatic benefit with immune checkpoint inhibitors. But there are three trials, large randomized phase three trials, which failed to show any benefit with immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors. So one was the Checkmate 143 trial. This looked at nivolumab, comparing it to bevacizumab in recurrent glioblastoma. And here you can clearly see overlapping curves showcasing no overall survival benefit with use of nivolumab. Uh, similarly, when they looked at Checkmate 498, now this was looking at unmethylated patients. And as I told you before, here temozolomide only offers these patients a 21-day benefit. So the question was, can you replace temozolomide with nivolumab and see how these patients compared uh, with the standard of care, which is radiation plus temozolomide? And here you can actually see that the blue curves, which was temozolomide and radiation, was actually better than radiation nivolumab in unmethylated patients. Uh, similarly, there was a phase three trial looking at, uh, called Checkmate 548 now. Now this is radiation plus temozolomide and nivolumab because here, Temozolomide offers them a six-month or a seven-month benefit, so you cannot replace it. So, but when again, when we looked at this study, nivolumab plus RT plus temozolomide in blue curves uh, did as well as uh, radiation plus temozolomide. So, based on these large phase three trials, at least as of today, there is no role of immune checkpoint uh, inhibition using anti-PD-1 based approaches in use of patients. Uh, so what are some of the challenges with utilization of checkpoint inhibition in glioblastoma? We do know that the immunosuppression uh, is um, uh, regulated by the CTLF4 pathway. We also know that Tregs are a big part, so the T regulatory cells accounts in glioblastoma patients are much higher. We also know that the CD4 counts are lower. Uh, Skip Grossman and his colleagues had shown that very nicely. And, and so we at Cleveland Clinic looked at, could we combine that with bevacizumab and nivolumab and use bevacizumab as a steroid sparing effort and a way to get increased dendritic cell expression. Unfortunately, we did not see any benefit with combining nivolumab with the regular dose of bevacizumab or the low dose of bevacizumab. Then uh, Tim Clausey and colleagues looked at neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 blockade in recurrent glioblastoma. And again, there was a small trial that was done, which is showcased here with a Nature publication a few years back, showcased benefit using neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 blockade, but the follow-up study failed to confirm that. Uh, the, and uh, Dr. Kim had talked about this to-the-top immunotherapy uh, study. There is an update here at Snow. This is now looking at tumor-treating fields, combining this with temozolomide and promlozumab, and comparing it to the historical cohorts of tumor-treating fields and temozolomide. And there is, seems to be, in this small 26-patient cohort, hypothesis-generating benefit in both progression-free survival and overall survival compared to the controls. Uh, more recently, just in, uh, in Rotterdam, a couple months back, Andy Lastman presented BN007. Now, this was a phase two slash three trial looking at ipinevo 
So ipilimumab, which targets the CTLA-4 pathway, along with nivolumab that target, targets the anti-PD-1 pathway, comparing it to temozolomide in unmethylated patients. Previously, I showcased you that nivolumab is no better than uh, radiation and temozolomide, and this trial showcased that ipilimumab and nivolumab is also no better than temozolomide. So uh, radiation plus temozolomide uh, with, the ultra, uh, with the other option of tumor-treating fuels is still the therapy to look at for these patients. So just in the next few minutes, um, uh, a lot of my clinical practice also involves brain metastases. So I just wanted to add a couple of abstracts. So one of uh, which is the metastral that uh, Manesh Mehta is going to be presenting uh, tomorrow uh, in the poster session. Uh, there was a study that I was involved in as well as a steering committee chair. We were now, we wanted to look at radiosurgery, which is a way to treat uh, brain metastases, but we also need other therapies to delay the micrometastatic disease from growing up. So as a result, this is a 270-patient study looking at non-small cell brain metastases, which are non-oncogenic driven. So on the basis of this study, we wanted to look at can use of tumor-treating fields uh, along with best standard of care after use with stereotactic radiosurgery can delay uh, from uh, you know secondary progression. So uh, please uh, feel free to visit uh, this poster being presented by Dr. Mehta in the poster session tomorrow. Then I wanted to pick one other abstract from ASCO this year. This was presented by a colleague of mine, Rupesh Katocha, and this was looking at uh, you know radiation necrosis in patients with brain metastasis. And Dr. King, as she had outlined with her patient, a lot of time radiation-related change is a very big problem for us in treating patients with brain tumors, whether it's uh, uh, treating patients with glioblastoma, uh, or it is brain metastasis. We actually have an R01 uh, looking at radiomics to distinguish. So, but here you can clearly see the patients can have increase in flare, and they may have an increase in contrast, and which could be very comparable in radiation-related change or tumor progression, and we don't know how to look at this. So this was an abstract looking at, uh, and, and uh, Dr. Kim had talked about some of the F-DOPA work as well, but this was looking at uh, fluciclovine as a synthetic amino acid-based diagnostic radiopharmaceutical, and this is actually uh, approved for prostate cancer to predict for biochemical recurrence of prostate cancer. So they looked at this in um, brain metastases. They've also looked at it in rectal glioblastoma, but here was a study that actually called the PURSUE trial, which showcased that in these patients who underwent actually a biopsy to confirm there was an 80% uh, sensitivity and a close to 80% specificity, as well as close to an 80% pro positive predictive value and over 80% negative predictive value. And the lesions with fluciclovine, which had an uptake of SUV max more than 4.8 or greater, were considered suspicious for recurrence. So this is a really exciting paradigm, and this showcases this. So here again, you can see these two tumors in a patient who has recurrence, which has a very nice uptake with this tracer compared to a patient who has radiation necrosis where there's no uh, great uptake. But if you look at the contrast-enhancing scans, there's not a lot of difference. So I think this could be a very interesting modality for our patients. And there is a phase three trial, which has enrolled completely, looking at 150 patients to see if we can validate these findings. Um, and next, uh, I would pass it on to uh, Dr. Steve Brem to help conduct the audience Q&A uh, for the next 10 minutes or so. Uh, thank you. That was an amazing tour de force, both speakers. Thank you so much. Covered so much. Um, I bet there's a few questions. So I have uh, some questions. Um, any potential uh, about 
any advances in leptomeningeal spread following a recurrence? It's a tough tumor. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, if we, if we, if we say treating rectal and glioblastoma is tough or treating brain metastasis is tough, treating leptomeningeal patients is even tougher. Uh, years back, we did a study with ANG1005, which was basically uh, uh, a drug that was targeted to find a way to have a better blood-brain barrier penetration. There was actually a phase three trial planned based on interesting data from phase two. Unfortunately, it's not going forward. Uh, there is actually a radioligand-based approach, which is now being looked at, which had shown some promising results. Uh, Dr. Andrew Brenner is looting that work out of UT uh, San Antonio. That is looking interesting. Again, there are still a lot of work to be done. Proton CSI, and I'll, uh, you know, I'll let Dr. Kim uh, comment as well, uh, is a, a thing that is making a very nice comeback. Jonathan Yang actually had shown it a phase two trial that was presented as an oral presentation at ASCO last year showcasing a benefit with proton CSI compared to the traditional uh, photon-based therapy and actually just got an approval for a phase three trial that will be led out of uh, NRG, but will be an intergroup study. So that's pretty interesting. Biocept-based used assays have had helped us in the recent times to look at picking up leptomeningeal disease and then seeing whether we can use targeted therapies. Now, what we know is some targeted therapies like um, osimertinib in EGFR patients have a very nice blood-brain barrier penetration, uh, and Bloom's study had shown nice uh, decrease in the CSF circulating DNA with the use of these targeted therapies. But if there's no oncogenic drivers, typically these patients do not do well. Uh, Dr. Priscilla Brasianos has looked at pembrolizumab as a uh, you know option for these patients, showcasing some benefit, but not, not something critically different. But this is definitely an area which needs more investigation and definitely could use more drug. One of the uh, questions is 11% uh, accrual uh, for clinical trials seems very low. Are there any practical, actionable steps that you would recommend to get that number higher? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, so uh, there is a lot of uh, organized effort to increase that. But, you know, when we have looked at what are some of the driving forces for a low number like 11%, uh, a big thing is patient access. Most clinical trials are offered at uh, comprehensive uh, cancer centers. And most of the glioblastoma patients still are still treated in the community. So I think we need to have a better network of uh, opening these trials in the community as well. Uh, the other aspect which is um, uh, challenging is often we have uh, criteria which are very restrictive. So as we are going in the era of precision oncology, our trials are becoming in increasingly restrictive. And I'll give you an example. We recently conducted a trial looking at FGFR gene fusion. And really, we had to look at 60 sites to enroll like 85 patients. That basically means we were enrolling one patient per site. You know, so, so sometimes uh, these trials, which are subtype driven in orphan disease states like glioblastoma, really become an Herculean effort. And then uh, also sometimes it's uh, awareness. A lot of patients, you know, uh, sometimes their treating physicians in the community may talk to them about, about a clinical trial, sometimes they do not. So I think we need more number of trials, we need greater access, we need less restrictive criteria, and we also need uh, more patient awareness. There's a question of when do you uh, use a pdl one inhibitor? Uh, when you have a patient with a hypermutated glioblastoma, do you do it a, and it's unmethylated tumor, do you do it early on or do you wait for recurrence? 
you know, so what I would say is, uh, unless they have a germline biallelic uh, mismatch repair deficiency, as shown by Eric Buffett, as of today, there has been no benefit of any immune checkpoint blockade in patients uh, with the hyperbutator uh, glioblastoma as well. Uh, there was a very nice Nature paper uh, by the Gustavo uh, colleagues in Paris, along with uh, in a collaboration with Keith Ligon and Dana Faber. They actually showcased that the hypermutator phenotype that actually occurs in glioblastoma and recurrent glioblastomas is actually not truly a hypermutator. So actually, when you treat them with the immune checkpoint blockade, they do not do well, actually. So there's a very mechanistically nice paper. So as of today, unless they have a uh, germline alteration, there's no data to support them. There is, however, an ongoing study by Alliance looking at it. So I would actually offer you to refer patients to an Alliance site, but that is in recurrent glioblastoma. I have a question for Dr. Yeah, I got him. Oh, um, yeah, sorry, question here. I've heard of TTS before, and it's really pretty interesting work, but so I'm a neuropathologist, and um, cerebroglioblastomas actually don't divide that fast. Um, and, and, you know, it's not, it hasn't been in fashion for several years, but uh, the correlation with K67 proliferation index data, and more precisely with actual mitotic figures per 10 fire fields and survival, is really not that good. I mean, it's, it's there, but it's not. So I'm just kind of curious with the TTFs. If, with that, I've, I haven't looked personally. I'm just wondering if there's any studies on this. Do you see better survival data or worse survival data with higher proliferation index GBMs, or does anybody even look at that? Um, I'm not aware of any published data that specifically look at proliferation rates, but I would say relative to the non-dividing normal cells, um, even a low proliferating GBM, you know, I think there would be a differential where um, analogous to the effect of radiotherapy, where again, why is radiotherapy like TTF, one of the very few modalities that have actually moved the overall survival needle? It is because like the other modality, um, it is more selectively effective from a tumor kill perspective against dividing cells, even if they're not like the most rapidly dividing cells. Um, there probably are some unknown mechanisms, and I think that data that Monmeet presented with pembrolizumab, although in small patient numbers, but um, newly diagnosed patients is intriguing. My guess is that there probably are other mechanisms. Again, it's a we use the term selectively local regional um, because of the fact that I don't know, I'm hypothesizing completely because I'm not aware of any data about this, but could there be any effect on the tumor and microenvironment, you know, apart from the tumor cell itself that is I impacting um, the cell's ability to proliferate um, and spread, you know, local regionally? I think those are questions that, that can be evaluated. But to me, given some of this early data, I wonder if there are mechanisms beyond just the tumor cell itself, perhaps affecting the tumor mi microenvironment that might be at play. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NAX860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Blue Earth Diagnostics and NovoCure Incorporated.